this evening, I know Pastor talked a little bit about this on Sunday morning. I'm like, hey, man, you stole my sermon. Because we have coffee time, right? Yep. And um, so we share what God's putting on our hearts. And then I decided to share this whole thing I was reading and God talking to me. And he's like, oh, okay. But I think God's been talking to him about the same thing. So he just took mine and his and made it great. Right, honey? But tonight, I just want to take it a little further, and I want to do a little bit more in-depth study, because this is a section of the Bible that, you know, it may not be in your promise box, okay? But everybody say, I love the Word of God. I love the Word of God. Say, I love all the Word of God. Not just the scriptures that are in my promise box. Amen. Amen. So I love to read the word. And anybody that actually reads the word, well, it will do you good. Amen. And you'll grow. The Bible says you'll grow thereby. Amen. I know Tony gets up at 1 o'clock in the morning. He reads the word. And his wife has to beg him to come get some sleep. Amen. So this, the sermon today or tonight is talking about the title I would say would be called Embracing Correction. Now that's a word that we don't always like. It means maybe some different things to different people. Well, we're going to see what it means to God. And I want to say this, that correction is God's gift. Correction is a gift from God to you and to me. It is a manifestation of his love to you. If we did not have correction or make adjustments or know what to do, we would just be floundering out there making all kinds of mistakes and probably going straight to hell, right? Amen. And you know, so God uses correction to keep us on path, to keep us on track, to keep us on course. And so many times people hate it when, when they're corrected. Even the Bible says it. It's, it's painful sometimes. But he says afterwards it yields a peaceable fruit a peaceable fruit of righteousness, right? And so we want to start having an attitude, if you'll, if you'll actually start studying correction and read the verses on correction and reproof, you will actually enjoy reading and letting the Bible correct you. Amen? Because it's the more that you allow him to speak into your life, speak into your heart, and correct you, the more peaceable you become. So I want more peace in my life. And so, but before that comes correction, comes adjustments. You kind of got to look at it like you're driving a car. When you're driving not on the interstate and you're in town, you know, you're making sometimes bigger corrections than you are when you're on the interstate. You make a big correction on the interstate, you know, you may have some consequences there. But you're always making corrections with the wheel to stay on track, to stay on course. If someone, you know, runs out in front of you, you're going to make a big correction. Why? To save yourself, to protect yourself. And so always remember this, that humility is the protection, is the protection from deception. If you come in, if, if you are wanting to know what God has to say to you, if you are wanting to grow in the word of God, if you're wanting to have an open heart to the Lord, don't be afraid that you're going to miss it and you don't know it and God's going to punish you. That's not the way it works. God says that he only requires us to walk in the light of what we know. In this church, we have a lot of light. And he does require us to walk in the light of that. 
Once you hear the light, once you know the light, once you see the light, once you get the revelation of it, he does require you to walk in that. But the revelation, if you walk in it, it is beautiful and it brings great profit into your life. So always remember this, if your heart can just stay humble and open to his correction, the things that he has shown you, don't worry about the things you don't understand or the things he hasn't shown you yet. Just think about what he has shown you. Humility is always protection from deception and you getting off track. So everybody say, I will endeavor to be humble. So I'm going to read a few scriptures to you. Shantae, I think she has some of them, but just listen to them and then we're going to jump into Hebrews 12. Amen. Here's a few scriptures about correction. Proverbs 15:32. He that refuseth instruction despiseth or hates his own soul. But he that hears reproof, he gets understanding. If you are constantly refusing instruction, the Bible says you hate your own soul. Okay, so then Proverbs um, 29, 15, the rod and reproof. Everybody say the rod, the rod. And, reproof. and reproof gives wisdom, but a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So, Scripture not only builds you up, not only edifies and exhorts you, not only gives you correct code of ethics, the correct doctrine, it reproves, it, re it corrects, and it's instructing you in righteousness. All right, so then look at this, Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment, his commandment is a lamp. Everybody say a lamp. His commandment is a lamp. You turn the light on, guess what? You get to see where your feet are going. So say the commandment is a light. It's a light to my feet. And the law is light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. So let me explain to you what the word reproof is. Reproof is a negative comment. It is a reprimand. Okay? That's what a reproof. It's like a rebuke. So it's not, Jesus maybe doesn't always have a happy face. He always does it in love, right? But reproofs, not just instruction. Reproof is a reprimand. It's a rebuke, okay? It's a negative comment about something you're doing that you need to turn 180 degrees, amen? That's what scripture can do for you. It can provide reproof. So then look at Proverbs, just a couple more. Sorry, no more Proverbs. We're going to leave. Oh, Proverbs, one of the ones pastor did Sunday morning, whoso loves instruction. It's not up there. Proverbs 12, 1. Whoso loves instruction loves knowledge, but he that hates those reprimands is stupid. One of the translations that's on here says he that hates reprimands is brutish. And I'm like, what in the world is a brute? Okay, he's brute. What, what, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Say, you old brute, you big old brute. We used to call, you know, bad boys that in school. You're just a big old brute. What that means is that he lacks all reasoning and intelligence. Well, that means stupid. So if you don't want to use the word stupid on someone, just call them a big brute. No, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing because they probably don't know what that means. All right, so that's what, that's what, instruction does. That's what reproofs. That's what correction. Now listen to this. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick. 
You can go back and read these. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and of the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Bible says that the word of God is like a piercing double-edged sword. If you will let that word cut you in a good way, and, and you're humble, you, the word of God, without any kind of punishment involved, will cut through and will be a discerner of the thoughts of the intent in the heart. If That is the number one way God wants you to receive instruction. Everybody say the number one way, to, number one that, way. that God wants for us to receive instruction is his voice speaking through his word to our conscience, to our heart. It says that if we let it, that word, that word is quick and powerful and it's sharp as a two-edged sword and it will cut and it will, it will bring correction and that is your number one greatest avenue to grow in God is to allow the word to cut and to allow the word to correct. So let's talk about people for a minute. Listen, I hear people say this all the time. I only let God correct me. I only submit to God. You're not submitted to God at all because God uses people. God uses people. I heard someone say one day, I only listen, I only, I only do what God tells me to do. I don't do what anybody else tells me to do. <laughs> I'm like, you're going to have a hard life because that's all over the word of God that you do. You, you listen to other people, people that are over you in the Lord, right? Amen. So please don't fall for that. Okay. So let's start with Hebrews 12. You ready? Let's pick Hebrews 12 apart because for the longest time, I like to avoid Hebrews 12, even though I knew it quite well. Because there's things about it that bothered me, right? Do you ever have questions? And maybe all my questions aren't 100% answered, and I'm not too proud to tell you that I don't have all the answers. Well, you already know that. But I will tell you that I'm just only going to show you the things God has enlightened and shown me. And then the rest of it he can show you. Amen? All right. Therefore, we also, verse 1, verse, that's where we're starting. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin. People, there are weights that we have that are not sin. There are things we do every day, things we do on the weekend, things, our hobbies, whatever, things we like to do, we spend too much time on. They are weighing us down. They're not bad. They're not sin, but they are distracting. They're taking your time from the word. So those are just decisions that you have to make to go, I'm putting that weight aside this weekend, amen, and forever, for, you know, for a while, possibly, until you control that. And let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, I didn't get to print this off, but the word endurance, it, it means to last, but it also means, it also connotates the meaning of going through a hard and difficult place with patience. That's what endurance means, going through a painful place with patience. So when you're running the 440, not the 440, when you're running the cross country, there's a time that you start hurting. 
There's a time that your legs and your stomach and you start getting cramps. And if you'll just get past that, right, and you train that way, there is pain involved. I used to run track. I know what that pain looks like. I know what it feels like. There was always there was always this point, even when we did warm-ups, where my side would be hurting me, I say killing me, didn't kill me, but hurting me very badly. My legs hurting me, everything in my body screaming out, stop, stop, stop. And then about 30 minutes into practice, I felt a lot better and got my second win. That's endurance. You last, you don't give up, you keep going. But it was painful for the moment, but I endured the pain with patience because I got through it. So that's what endurance means. Looking unto Jesus. So in the sin which so easily let us run with endurance. Everybody say endurance. endurance. The race that is set before us. Every one of us in this room have a race. I cannot tell you and, and define for you what your particular race is, but every one of you have this God-given race that he's given you to run, that he's designed for you to run. So he's saying, let us run that race that is set before us. That means there's a, there's a start and there's a finish line. Many people don't even get hardly across the start line. And so much more many people never make it to the finish line. And it is because what we're going to read about in Hebrews 12. And it's because they're not willing to receive correction from the Lord. And correction from those over them in the Lord. Amen. So it says, so here's how we help, us help ourselves get through this, the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus. So first of all, we're going to put our eyes on Jesus. It may, it may get painful. It may get hard. It may be long. But he says, look unto Jesus. And I'm not talking about sickness and disease right now. So looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It was painful what he had to endure, not just in the physical, but in the spirit, in the soul. It was painful. But he lasted, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disguising, despising the shame, and has, sit down, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus despised the shame. It means he loathed it. He hated it. You have to think about it this way. Jesus was loved by many people. He was a leader. He, he, he healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He cast out devils. He had so many. I mean, think about your leaders or think about you leading someone else, your family. He's up on a cross, not with a cloth. He's up on a cross without a cloth, naked. It says he despised the shame. He despised it. He loathed it. Think about one of your beloved leaders having to stand or sit or be up on a cross in front of you. Someone you look up to that you love and respect, bare naked. It says he despised the shame. He endured a lot, right? That and just in that little piece. It says he despised the same. For consider him. Who are we supposed to consider? Him. While, because listen to what we're about ready to read. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. We all have the opportunity to become very weary and discouraged when we get corrected, whether it's from God or whether it's from someone in our life that we trust. 
amen, that God has sent. We just get weary. We're like, oh, not again. We get discouraged, amen? But the Bible says consider Jesus. During that time that you're about to get weary and discouraged, consider Jesus. Put your eyes right back on Jesus and said, I have never resisted to bloodshed. I have never resisted to bloodshed, amen? I have never been naked in front of people that love me and trust me, right? So Jesus said, he said that he, God says we're to consider him who endured this, such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. You have not, like Jesus, yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and the word and is there because it's connecting this statement right here about running your race, not becoming weary, not becoming discouraged. Consider Jesus, what he went through for you because of you, the joy that was set before him. So now he's got a conjunction and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons or as to children. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So let's look at that word chasten. The word chasten, it means it's for someone is to correct to chasten someone is to correct him or her, often, often, not all the time, but often with the use of some pretty steep punishment. Chasten also means to restrain. Scourge, so let's talk about chasten. Chasten means to correct. Often there's some punishment involved here. Now, a couple people in my own camp, I call it my camp, word of faith, that I respect and I don't stop respecting them. But they have said that in the Greek, the word chasten just means to instruct and to train. Okay, but how do you train something? I had a horse. I had a horse. I couldn't train him just with words or just with gentle feelings with my legs and my hands. So there's a click. There's a gentle push with my legs, which means you need to go. But while I was training him to learn those signals, he didn't want to do those things. Many times I had to use a whip. I didn't beat him. I would just direct him. If he got real stubborn, I tapped him on the butt with the whip. So that would cause him to do the circle, to respond to my legs, whether I was on his back. However it was, I used that training. I had to use the whip, but I didn't beat him crazily. Okay, but he turned out to be a really good horse and, he, and to where I could listen, he'd listen to my leg signals without me ever having to use a whip ever again because he was trained and disciplined. There was a little bit of inflicted pain on his behind, right, to get him to maneuver in the right area, but he was not abused. So, so when we talk about chasten, let's say that the word chasten in the Greek and in that word is just to instruct and to train. Let's just say that they're right. 
and I'm wrong in the fact that it involves some punishment with it. Let's say it just means to instruct and train. So let's read that verse again. Verse 5, my son, do not despise the instructing and the training of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he instructs and trains and scourges every son whom he receives. You cannot diss that word. The word scourge means to use a whip. It means to inflict pain. So whether we want to fight over Greek and American words, we're not going to do that tonight, but you can't get away from the word scourge. So the bottom line here is there is some punishment involved when the word of the Lord's voice is not heeded. Does that make sense? So just think about yourself as a parent. That's the best way to think about God. A good mommy and a good daddy are strong people, and they love their children. But as in Romans 11, it talks about the goodness and the severity of God. So a good mama should have, and daddy should have goodness and severity. So one of my sons you know, he ran out into the road a lot, crossed a dirt road because he loved to play in a little river, right? A little river in a ditch when it rained. And we told him, we told him with our voice, we reproved him three or four times. Don't do that. Probably three times. Don't do that because cars come flying up over this hill. There are not a lot of them, but there was one specific old Camaro guy that was crazy that would come flying over this hill and you wouldn't know it and, and he'd, he'd have crushed him. You know, he would have. So he just like, okay, mommy, I won't and go back and do it. Okay, mommy, I'm sorry, I won't. Repent it for a little while and go back and do it. Finally, we just had to beat the living daylights out of him. You know, we didn't hurt him, but we inflicted pain. He never did it again. And thus we saved his life from that bad boy Camaro right? So, so that, you need to look at it that way. So my question was to God, then what does your chastisement look like if there's punishment involved? Because I know you don't send sickness and disease on people. I know Jesus bore our sickness. I know he bore our disease. I know he became poor that I might become rich. Yada, yada, yada. So I'm not telling people that, that you do that. But there's got to be something that inflicts pain. And, can't, and it can't be just a strong voice to my heart. And I want to know what it is because I want to be able to instruct my people righteously and rightly. So let's go visit what it looked like in the Old Testament. Let's visit what it looks like in the New Testament. Because there's always somebody in the crowd that goes, that's Old Testament, doesn't apply anymore. But the Bible says in Romans, in the epistles, and it says in another place, I think in Corinthians or Hebrews, it says, these things that you learned in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, they were written for your admonition so you won't fault here and now and end up in a quandary that you don't want to be in. Amen? All right, so if things can happen and you can lose your way in the Old Testament, things can happen and you can lose your way in the New. And there, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves us. And yes, he poured his wrath out on Jesus. But when his sons and daughters get off track and get out of line, he is just not that willing to let you just go berserk and to lose you altogether. He loves you, and he's going to do what it takes, 
right? To go, I want them to make the race, to finish the race Amen. with endurance. Amen? Amen. And, and so my point here is this. Regardless of what you think chasing means, scourging is, there's no doubting. What, he, he only, not only chastens, he scourges every son whom he receives. Amen? Okay, so what did we read in Proverbs? The rod, the two R's, the rod and reproof. The rod and reproof bring wisdom. Amen? So we got to figure out what that rod looks like now in the New Testament. All right, so... Verse 7 of 12, we're kind of going through this a little bit verse by verse. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as, as with sons. For what son is there? I just lost my place because I got some water. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are Ill, illegitimate. You, and one says you're a bastard. You're a bastard. You don't have a father. That's what that means. You're, illegit you're illegitimate. You're a bastard. You don't have a father. So you don't have your heavenly father. So he says, listen to this in verse 8. But if you are without chasing, of which all have become partakers. Did you know that we don't like to hear that we're a partaker of chastening? We're a partaker of discipline. We're a partaker of correction. We want to hear, pastor, preach to us. We're a partaker of the divine nature of the very life of God, partaker of all the blessings God has for us, everything he's done for us. We want to hear those things. But the Bible is the Bible. Do we still love his word? Yes, he says we are all partakers of his chastening when it's needed. Everybody say, I love God's correction because he takes the time to correct me and keep me on track. Amen. Furthermore, verse 9, we've had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, everybody say, but he, God, for our profit, that we may now be a partaker of his holiness. So first the partaker, we're a partaker of the chastening and the discipline of God so that we might become a partaker of his holiness. That's the whole end route here with which, with which no man shall see God. He's wanting us not only to start our race, he's wanting us to finish our race. He's wanting us to endure to the end. And so he sets these corrections in our lives as we're going and as we're racing, as we're going down our path, as we're going down our road, as we're running our race, he sets these adjustments and these corrections. And we're, our hearts are the ones that determine how severe those corrections are or not. And so the more sensitive to, we are to his voice, and making that correction quickly, it's just a whole lot less severe. Amen? And that's what my goal is. Let's talk about people in the church. Let's not talk about people in the church. We'll go there if we have time. We'll go there. No, it's a good example because you guys need to know. You guys need to know. Now, no chastening, verse 11, seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. If I was tonight... It's not really painful because I'm not pulling out anybody's particular faults that they need to make adjustments on. 
I'm just instructing you, right? I'm just instructing you. I'm, I'm talking to you as a general group of believers. And so you're learning. So I'm instructing. I'm teaching you. I'm leading you. Um, in a sense, I'm training you somewhat, but the t- full training doesn't happen until you get to actually be in the race and something happens and something corrects you, just like the horse, right? I, I, training involved a lot more than me just talking to handsome petting him and giving him a, lo- a few leg signals. It involves so much more. There was a code, of eth- a, co- a code of rules that I expected a certain behavior out of him. And if he didn't exemplify that behavior to me, I would start low on the discipline scale. I would tighten my legs a little harder, a little harder. Then I would jab my heel in him because I really didn't want to use the whip. I really didn't want to use it because he-, he would just, you know, Whoa! you know, but he just kept being stubborn. He'd plant his feet. I ain't moving. That's when I, and I had a short little whip. That's when I would just, I wouldn't rear it over my head because it'd freak him out, but I had it just right on my right hand. So I would just go through the, the areas of the still small voice. Then God sends a person to you. Then God sends a prophet. And then it's all out because he's after you. He wants you to turn. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Amen? All right, so let's go on. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. God said it's painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 12, therefore, strengthen your hands which hang down. Don't be weary. Don't be discouraged in the feeble knees. And make straight paths for your feet because you were veering off. Okay? Make your path straight again so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So the bottom line here is is that God is wanting to, to he, whatever discipline you ever receive from the Lord, it's for your profit. Is for your profit. So let's talk about people. And we'll talk about this at the end. Hopefully I'll have a few minutes. We're going to talk about who corrects who. Who has the right to correct you? Who doesn't have the right to correct you? Okay? There is a scope. There is a measure. There's, there's, a, there's a bubble. Can I say a bubble? There's a limit around you of who can correct you and who can't correct you. So, amen. So, when we, we're the leaders here, we're like the mama and the papa of the organization. We don't go around, even ourselves, correcting everything that we see going on in your lives. And we hear a lot and we know a lot. We don't know everything, but we know stuff because people are talking. You know, people's lives, they're not gossiping. They're just, we just hear stuff. So, it is not our job to always just go to every one of you and go, now, Bob, I just think I heard you did this, and he probably did. It's not my duty to go, to go say something to Bob. That He's not in my sphere at this point. In other words, if I asked him to do a job and he said yes, then him and I are working together, and then he just totally does something bizarre, I'm probably going to say something. But every day, every day, every day, I'm not going to pinpoint and follow everybody around and correct them. That's not my job. But people that come under our leadership who say, I want to be your leaders, 
right? Mm -hmm. They say, I want to lead with you. I want to grow. They have submitted themselves under us. They have also given us a scope of a sphere to be able to speak into their lives. Mm -hmm. And I'll read that to you in a minute where Paul said, I have a certain sphere. I'm not here for everybody, but I am here for you because I'm, you're one of the first churches I preach the gospel to, I have the right to correct you. Mm-hmm. You know, because they got off. They got this haughty attitude in Corinth. And they said, some people were saying, oh, he, he writes these big, big letters with his hand. Not big letters like this, but these big, bold letters. But when he comes in person, he's too weak. He's too much of a wimp to tell us that to our face. That's what they were writing. And Paul said, let me tell you something. I don't want to be bold to your face. That's why I'm writing the letter first. But indeed, I will be bold to your face if you don't get the things set in order now. And I have that right because God has given me this authority over you because I, you are the one of the, you are in my scope of authority. So I love the way he said it. He is a very humble man, but he says, if I have to, I'm gonna be bold in front of you, but I don't wanna do it. A true leader at heart that loves people does not enjoy correcting anybody. I don't enjoy correcting anybody. I hate it. And I've, it's been 30 years we've been here at this church, and I can tell you I don't like it any more today than I liked it 30 years ago. I can tell you I've gotten better at it. I can tell you my way and um, the things God gives me to say. I've gotten more skilled at it, but I still hate it. Amen? So, so here's the deal. You and me in our cells, we have issues in our soul. And unfortunately, when we're corrected sometimes, we take it so personal and emotional about it that, that we think that that person is saying, you're no good, I don't respect you, I no longer think well of you. You're not my friend and I don't love you. That's what they're hearing because they already struggle inside with inferiority. At home, it's not good. Maybe their husband is abusive. Maybe they're always talked down on all the time. So when they get here and they're like, oh, you know, they get this around this section of love and everybody loves you and the leaders, we do love you. But then when it's time to correct, even if we do it in love, they still pull off and say, you've attacked me. You've hurt my very, the, the very sunder of my soul. You know, it's because they're, they're, you know, struggling with inferiority. So what I would say to all of you is that maybe when God speaks to you, you're a lot, you're okay with it. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But when someone else speaks to you, Ask the Lord to help you take what you need to take from that, even if they don't say it in the right attitude. We should all say it in the right attitude. Somehow it's hard to get past if it's said in the wrong attitude. But in your heart, go, God, what do you want me to take away from this? I'll make the adjustment. I'll make the change. Amen. Never get your worth from what you do here or anywhere else. Don't get your worth from your job. Don't get your worth from what you do for your husband that he's happy about. Don't get your worth from anything you do. Only get your worth from what Jesus did for you. That's it. That's it. That that will help you guys 
and us take correction. Amen? Especially husbands and wives. Sometimes our spouses don't deliver correction the way we'd like them to deliver it. Amen. Him to me or... or <laughs> him, him to me or me to him. And guess what, people? We all need to learn how to correct when we should, when we shouldn't correct, and how to do it. Amen? But I'm not preaching on marriage tonight. No way. No way. No way. All right. That's not, that's not my deal. All right. So let's talk, about, let's talk about a couple of people. Let's talk about Saul. Let's talk about David. You guys know about Saul. So I'm going to run through them real quick. Saul was a humble man when he first started out. God made him the first king of Israel. He went, God told him, Samuel told him, this is the way it needs to be done. Blah, 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 kill all these people. They, they, I mean, they were horrible to, their, to the Israelis, and God said, wipe them all out. Don't ask me now why God said that, just, just listen to the story. God just said, wipe them all out. The people, I mean, they were having sex with each other, they were having sex with animals, everything was mutate, everything was a mess. God said, just wipe them out. I don't want him ill I don't want one thing, one beast, anything infiltrated the camp. And guess what? He says, the good stuff, the bad stuff, don't take gold, don't take silver. It just, I don't want you touching any of that stuff. They got in there, and guess what? There were some good-looking sheep, and there were some good-looking cows, and they set it off to the side, and there was some money. And, and, and long story made short, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul's like, hey, how's it going, dude? What's up? Like there was nothing wrong. And the thing is, is that Saul had like three golden opportunities just to go, Samuel, you are right. I have sinned. But he kept making excuses for what he did. Oh, those animals? Well, we killed all the people, but there was some animals that are so nice and good looking that, oh, we're going to offer them to the Lord for sacrifice. Won't he be happy? They're for him. They weren't for him. They were for them. He just made that up on the fly. And so then, what about the money? Oh, that money, that'll be burned on the altar too. That, he just made all this stuff up. He kept having these opportunities to repent, and he didn't. And finally, God just lowered the hammer and said, Saul, I'm taking the kingdom from you. I'm taking the kingdom from you. you when you were small in your own eyes, you respected me, and you obeyed me. But now, you know, and, and even then... Even then, Saul begged Samuel to come up to the mountain so he could look good in front of all the people. Let's praise the Lord together and sacrifice. Yes. And Samuel's not, I'm not going with you. You're in big trouble, you know? And so that's a sad ending for Saul. But Saul had a race to run. That's what I'm trying to say. God loves Saul. And God, and then he started, you know, uh, Go into a witch, and how can you help me? And all the, you know, when you, when you keep justifying, justifying, justifying your actions, it just gets worse and worse. So the, the fact is, is that Saul started a race, but he didn't finish it. And here's the thing. If we don't ever have any consequences, ever, for not listening and obeying the still small voice of God to our conscience, why would we change? Why would we change? If, if that's all chastening is, is just the word of God speaking to us. Well, what happens to the people who are not listening to his words? Then he's got to come and his steeper punishment involved here. Because he loves you and he wants to turn you. And some ships are harder to turn than others. 
Amen? Let's talk about David. You ready? 2 Samuel 12. Let's talk about David. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on him, but we are going to read him. We are going to read about him. Okay. 2 Samuel. Here we go. Just skip around with me, Shantae, okay? So let me give you a little background, and then I'm going to jump to 10 in just a minute, okay? The background is this. Israel's off to war. David's home in his castle. Shouldn't be home. He sees Bathsheba bathing. There, she's, she does that every night. That's, that's nothing new. She's not out trying to seduce a king. All the men are off to war. So she's out bathing. The fact that he could see her is his place was just a lot higher than hers. You know, I, I don't know about the other times when Uriah was home. I, I don't know, you know, where David was. Or, but David had a bunch of wives of his own. So I, he just was out. Everybody was gone except him. Saw her. Should have ran right then. Should have walked inside his place, locked the door, put the blinds down, said, oh, Jesus, help me. And gone visited one of his wives or concubines. He had a load of them. But no, he saw the most beautiful woman in all the world. And she just happened to be the wife of his general, Uriah. But he kept looking. He wanted her, brought her to him, laid with her, got her pregnant. Oh, my God, I have messed up. When she sent him that letter, he's like, oh, my God, I, I have messed up. So he sends for Uriah to come and hopefully to make him lie with his wife so she, he'll think that's his baby. So here he is covering. I mean, at least he tried to get that to happen. So he calls, Uriah goes, no. Uriah was in Jerusalem for two days. He said, lie with your wife, lie with your wife. He's like, no, I can't. All of my men are out in the battle, and I cannot do that to my brothers. I am not lying with my wife. They don't get to lie with their wife. And so here you go. David couldn't get him to lie with his wife. So the next night, David takes him to his table in the castle, and he gets him drunk. And Uriah is drunk. He figures, if I can get him drunk, I can get him to go lie with his wife. So he says, all right, go home now. He was drunk, but he wouldn't go home. He laid out there with the servants on a bed at the castle and said, I will not go lie with my wife. The next day, David sent news to, to Joab and said, put him in the heat of the battle, then retreat from him and let him die. So is that a big deal? That's a big deal. Not only did he commit adultery, he murdered him. Now, listen to what I'm having to say. I'm getting ready to show you what the chastening of the Lord looks like. Just to show you what it looks like. He said, Nathan, he sent, he sent to Nathan, so he died. Nathan the prophet came and told him the story about the little lamb, right? Little lamb. One guy has this little lamb. He's like a pet to the whole family. This guy loves this little lamb, and here comes a traveler who has a whole herd of sheep but doesn't want to take his herd. So he comes down, and he steals the, the, the man's little ewe lamb and eats it and sacrifices it and has it for dinner. And David's like, oh, death should come to that man. That's a bad man. And Nathan says, you are the man. And Nathan could have gotten killed for that. In that time, you looked at the king wrong. You could, 
you know. So Nathan had to have some, he had to have some guts to come in there and say what God said. And so here's what David said. Here's the good part of David's story. David repented and said, oh God, I have sinned. Guess what? David's fellowship was restored instantly with God. When you sin and when you say, I repent of my sin, you have instant access back to God, instant fellowship. But listen to me, the consequences of that sin that you have done, it may last for a lifetime. Don't make, don't take the chance. Don't come in with the attitude that is prevalent in this culture today. God is, Jesus has died for my sins, past, present, and future. Doesn't matter what I do. Yes, it does matter what you do. Yes, it does. There will be huge consequences for sin now, just like it was for sin then. And if you don't stop, you, that sin will harden your heart and just keep taking you further and further away from God. And you are not once saved, always saved. That's why God wants to put a restraining order on you with chastisement. So here's what David's consequence was. Are you ready? Let's read it. Verse 10. Before we do that, let's talk about Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. We're not just talking about money, people. We're talking about anything. So here you go. Does God love David? Did he say, David's a man after my own heart? Did David repent? Was he instantly restored? Yes, wonderfully, back in fellowship with God. Let's move on. Now, therefore, verse 9, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite. David murdered Uriah. Do you all understand that? He didn't, just, he didn't just have sex with his wife. He murdered him. He said, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. He lied with another man's wife. For you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin you shall not die. However, verse 14, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed. So here's, here's, what, I'm, here, here's what I'm to say to you. David is reaping what he sowed. Is he back in fellowship with God? Yes. Does God love him? And, and does he finish his race? Yes, David finished his race. But David, the sword never left David's house. One of his sons was killed right at his own table just by, uh, uh, you know, people rising up against him secretly, you know, killed him um, from what I remember. 
The other son led a rebellion against David, and he had to be killed. So that, come on, people, that's sorrowful. Think about your own children. The sword never left his house. It never left his house. And he lost the child that he had with Bathsheba. Um, What could have happened differently? You know what should have happened when David brought Uriah home and he refused to lay with his wife? He should have gone to Uriah right then and said, I have sinned against you. He should have had a meeting right there with Bathsheba and Uriah and just laid it all out. And, And the sword would not have done what it has done to his house. And the stuff that he went through, it would not have had to happen. There would have been consequences, but not near what happened. Amen? So is there consequences? There is consequences. Amen? And so here's my rendition of this. Here's what I'm going to say about this. The Lord lifts his hand. There's a hand of protection on Israel all that time. And, and, the, and the, they, they won every battle. They could not take them. And they outnumbered them all the time. But when the hand of the Lord lifted That is the chastisement. When the hand of the Lord lifts off of you, he's not causing you sickness and disease. Satan is the author of sickness and disease. But when he lifts his hand off you, because you keep rebelling, you keep sinning, one step out of God is a step out of light, is a step out of love. One step out of love with your brother is a step away from God and a step into darkness. He's not doing it, but he is lifting his hand. Or you're stepping out from underneath that. Does that make sense? So let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. I don't have time to go to Solomon, to 1 Kings 11. But Solomon was the, Solomon was the same way. Solomon, he had a race to run. God granted him wisdom. He granted him everything he asked for. Because he didn't, he said, because you didn't ask for money, I'm going to give you wisdom. And plus, not just wisdom, I'm going to give you riches because I'm so proud of you, Solomon. And Solomon did good for a few, few years, right? And then all of a sudden, it says his heart turned away. He started, in one, in one passage, it says that whatever Solomon fastened his eyes on, he, he got. He never withheld from himself whatever he wanted when it came to women, really, or anything else. He had 1,000 wives, princesses, and concubines. 700 wives. They're not wives. I have a word for that, and I'm not going to tell you what those are. But, but he had 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women at his disposal. And they, many of them, were from outside, they were from everywhere that God said, don't get them. Because God told him, he said, if you take them, you are going to, they're going to turn your heart away from me. And they did. And he started building a temple for all of them and burning incense with them and sacrificing to their idols. God was very displeased with Solomon in his old age. And he said, because you've done this, Here's the consequence. Because you've done this, I'm tearing the whole kingdom away from you. But because I've given my word to your father, David, I'm going to leave one little piece of the kingdom to your son. One little piece. But everything else is going to pot. That that is punishment. That is chastisement. That is him reaping, right? Right? Because in the end, God wanted to turn him. Amen? 
So let's talk about the New Testament. And we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 11. Has anybody read 1 Corinthians 5? What are we supposed to do with a sexually, this is the epistles. What are we supposed to do with a sexually immoral person in our congregation, a brother? We're not talking about people on the outside. Someone who you know is continuing in sexual immorality. And according to the Bible, looking like he was flaunting it. That I don't know, but it seemed that way. And so Paul knew about it. He talked to the pastor about it. He said, listen, I've told you this over and over. You know this person is, is messing with his father's wife. young wife, mm -hmm. stepmother, stepmother. And he keeps messing with her and messing with her, and you still let him to keep attending the church. We don't even talk like this. And I can't preach this on a Sunday morning, okay? So you guys, y'all are the cream of the crop. But Paul said, Paul said, do not make, do not have company with that guy anymore. Put him out of your church. We wouldn't say that. We go, no, we need to walk in love. Let's correct him. They did correct him. He wouldn't listen. They corrected him. He wouldn't listen. He said, get him out, put him out of the church. No more socializing with him. Do not even go to his house and eat at his table. Why? He said, he's a brother. He's not going to hell at this point. He says he's a brother. Why, why is he excommunicating him from the fellowship? So that guy will have some time to sit and go, do I want to live this way? I have been rejected from my whole family. The family of God, everybody. God is wanting something to happen here for a big change to happen in his life. What is he talking about in Titus 3.10? Who's ever read Titus before? What is, what is Paul or the person that wrote Titus saying about a person in your church who is causing divisions? I'm not going to go into what all that means, okay? But just causing strife, just going around, causing divisions, getting people up in arms. Many times it's against the pastor, okay? They don't like this, and it's, it's, it's rough criticism. It's not anything with care, you know? It's just rough, rough, rough. Division, division. Here's what Titus 3 says. Titus 3.10. Put it up there. Do you have it or did I not give you that? Anyway, that's okay. Titus 3.10 says, those that are causing, reject. Okay, let's read it. Reject a divisive man or woman after the first and second admonition. You got two tries. You're going to talk to them twice. Next, 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. What was verse 12 say? Or did I just end it with there? I probably just ended there. Okay, never mind. That's good. So what do you, down further, I think it says about putting them out. You reject him. You put him out. We don't preach that. That's not Jesus loves me, this I know. That's not 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You know, God said put him out. That is chastisement. That is a severity of punishment. They've been given chance. They've been given chance. He didn't necessarily say that he, he put them sickness and disease. But when you are warped and sinning, God's just lifting his hand off you. All right, so let's read 1 Corinthians 11. You ready? 1 Corinthians 11. Am I right? All right. Can you read fast with me? Can you turn fast, Miss Chante? All right, therefore, when you come together in one place, that, that cuts off. When you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. 
For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. He says, I have something against you. I need to talk to you about this. He said, I don't want to talk, but I need to talk. I'm not pleased about this. He says, you're all coming together as one body, as one fellowship. And at that time, they were all coming together for the Lord's Supper. That's how it was supposed to be. And it was an actual supper. They all wait for each other. They have supper together. Then they take communion. It was a whole big deal. And he says, he says, let me, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those while they have nothing? So what was happening is people were coming in and they were coming in early. And they were eating all the food, right? And they were getting drunk and then poorer people were coming in and there wasn't a lot of food left. And they weren't even taking communion together. They were just using it as a big eat, come and go party. So that's what was happening. He says, what do you, do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Keep going. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered. Okay, so let me go there. So he, he went ahead and, and is reading communion with him, right? Or he's doing communion with him. For I receive from the Lord, and then he does the communion. This do in remembrance of me. Then verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So you know the situation. Don't just read a few verses in your Bible, right? Always read what's around it. Amen? So... Therefore, but let a man examine himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This can be twofold, not discerning the Lord's body. Number one, it can be that you don't understand the body because he just said before, I didn't read it. This is my body that's broken for you. So you, you cannot understand the Lord's body, what that means to you. His body was broken, so your body does not have to be broken. But what he's really referring to here is he's not discerning the body of Christ. They're not discerning the body, not loving the body. You are dissing the body. You're not walking in love to the body. Amen? So he says... For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or died premature. Everybody say, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Everybody say, if I judge myself, the hand of the Lord would not depart from me. Now, he doesn't depart from you. You're walking out of love. You're walking into enemy territory. That's all that means. He says, judge yourself so you wouldn't be judged. Amen? And that doesn't mean bad judge. It just means so something wouldn't happen like that that you don't want. But when we are judged, what, what happens? We are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now he's talking about damnation. He's saying, I'm trying to stop you. I'm trying to stop you. He said, judge yourself so I don't have to judge you, so I don't have to discipline you, so I don't have to, ch so I don't have to take my hand off you. Right? He says, you take care of this because now once my hand is off you, because I can't be a part of what you're doing. If you're treating a brother wrong, he's going to ask you about that because that's his child. God loves all his children and he wants all his children to walk in love. So that's a big, that's a big issue here. 
So here it is. It goes, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry when you're coming to church, eat at home first and then come to church with the proper heart, the proper attitude, and we'll all take communion together. That is the whole issue around what was happening in 1 Corinthians 11. But the bottom line tonight is what I'm trying to, to, to tell you is that correction, everybody say correction, correction. From, the Lord from the Lord saves me. Saves. Correction, correction coming from someone, coming from someone that, I that I trust or that's over me, over me. no matter how it comes out, no matter how I feel, it is for my profit because it's coming from the Lord. Amen? All right. I think I'm done, but let me look at my notes to see if I uh, lost anything or did not say anything. Everybody say, my humility is my protection from deception. I need to always be humble. Amen? All right, honeyberry. Did she do good? You know, this is a tough subject and you can't cover it in an hour. Let me tell you something that's happened in the body of Christ. We have taken a major subject and we've tried to answer it in 10 minutes. You can't do that. You have too many scriptures in the Bible to talk about the judgment of God to pretend like it doesn't happen. And, and we have really, all of us have, tried to explain to people God is a good God. He's not running around angry at everybody. We've tried to help people understand that God's not causing sickness and disease. But I think we've leaned so far that we've created apathy. And um, so I'm going to tell you a couple of stories because this is a major issue. One time Brother Hagin was not obeying God. God called him to be a prophet and Jesus appeared to him and said, I've called you to be a prophet and a teacher. He didn't like being a prophet. So he didn't do it. Being a prophet is very controversial. People like Mary Fran, y'all don't understand this. She's not invited everywhere. People are scared of her. So she's strange. Um, we, we recognize uh, pastor and evangelist. We don't, even, we don't even have prophets. You know, nobody even recognizes them. So Brother Hagin did not prophesy. He stopped obeying God. Well, one day he ends up in the hospital with his arm out of joint and Jesus walked in the hospital and pulled up a chair and sat down. Now, you got to talk. We're talking about a man who Jesus appeared to him nine times. Do you think that Kenneth Hagin was used by God? I mean, I don't think Jesus is all that stupid, do you? He's not stupid. I don't know anybody else on this earth right now Jesus physically appeared to nine times. I don't know anybody. So that would place him pretty high up there as far as somebody to listen to. He said... I allowed that to happen to you. Now, that's another word. We, we, we don't, God don't allow it. Well, I'm going to tell you in a minute that he does. Uh, and, and I know some people have already put up their little nose, but it's fine. You'll, you'll learn one day if you're humble enough to learn anything. So Brother Hagin, he's, he pulls up a chair and said, I called you as a prophet. And you are not obeying me. He said, had I not just let 
let this happen to you, you would have died early and never finished your course. Now, we have this idea that God is running everything. He is not. You can disobey God and get out of the will of God. And you can open up the door and you can get killed. Now, God's not doing it. So wouldn't it be better if God just allowed something to happen to get your attention? Wouldn't that be a little better? I think it would be. So there's another day that this happened to me. I went Raymond, and the Lord said, stay home today. I went home, turned on the TV, one of my favorite preachers on TV. The Lord said to me in an audible voice, he is going to fall. You're talking about blowing my mind. I said, no, sir. He said, and it will not be what you think. What happened to this man, I'm not going to name his name. Some of you may know who I'm talking about. He got caught in a girly place in a strip joint. Now, he's a preacher on television all over the world. But he started criticizing everybody that wasn't of his camp on television, publicly criticizing them by name. Criticized Kenneth Copeland, criticized Joyce Myers, I mean by name on television. This man is trashing the body. And Jesus said, I'm going to take my hand off of him. And boom, he came down. Now, we don't, no, we don't talk about this stuff anymore. We don't, even, we don't even have a place in our church to ever talk about this type of stuff. You think that Jesus is just up there happy and all the time he never gets upset anybody. Well, you, you've lost your mind. He has been upset with more than one people. So sometimes Lisa and I go back and we'll read like Rick Renner and, um, and different books where, where they're talking about how God deals with men and women of God because we, we want to run our race and finish our course. We do. Lisa and I want to run our race and finish our course. We don't want to get off into goofiness and have God go, hey, son, I got someone else to take that church since you're not going to do what I'm going to ask you to do. And don't think for a minute he won't do it. And we make ourselves read the uncomfortable scriptures. We read the stuff we don't like. And I've had the Lord correct me. So I'm going to tell you a story right now. And Lisa's done, but I'm, but I'm going to add to this because I know. About the girl, right? Huh? You tell the story about the girl. I'm going to tell the story about a son. Tell the story about the girl and God said to you, if you had done this. Oh, y'all you know, remember me telling the story one time about the girl who approached me for favors? Okay, now listen, listen, to, what, listen to what he said to me. I'm having problems at home with my wife. Not me. Not, not Lisa. <laughs> the other, in in, the in other, other words, woman. my sex life isn't real good right now. So I'm getting approached by a pretty young lady who has actually not hinting. She's verbally, go, let's go. And, I, and the devil said, God will forgive you. And the Lord said to me, I will. But you will never step into the call of God that I have for your life. Right after that, a woman in the apartment complex got raped. And the, the, the police came to me and read me my Miranda rights. I have a key to everybody's apartment. And she says, it's me, even though I had a ski mask on. And I, I looked at him and said, well, you're joking, right? This is a joke. He said, sir, I'm not joking. That was the day that my ex-boss, Rita McKim, who is the 
the Chamber of Commerce of Tulsa's wife took me to lunch with Mark Dybert and Kathy the maid and kept me there from 11 to 3. Made me so angry because they were giving me a going away party. Satan was setting me up. When I, when I proved to the police who I was with, they said, you know, Mr. Morgan, have a good day and walked away. What would have happened if God was unable to protect me? Does my disobedience open the door to the devil? Y'all listen to me. Yes, it does. But God protected me because of, I was honorable. I got, I got asked. I could have gone and said, uh, you know, God will forgive me. Sure, I could have. But I don't believe that today I'd be preaching. I don't believe I'd be pastoring. And I don't believe I'd be married to this woman. I don't believe that. But would God love me? Yeah. Am I forgiven? Yeah. Do y'all see this? This is what we're trying to explain to you guys. There are repercussions for wrong. Now, as a pastor, we have a very, very hard time anytime pastor, loving, kind, sweet pastor has to look at someone and go, don't do that again. I thought you loved us. I do. Don't do it again and you're gone. All right, I'm going to tell you another story. I know a man that has a son. And he said to his son one day, the lights on your truck don't work. Do not come home after dark. Dark came, dark went, son's not home. Police call the man. We have your son. Come get him. And the man told the police, tell him to walk. Bad dad? No, guys, no, that's not a bad dad. All right, when we talk about the chastening of God, I want you to understand that God is a good daddy. Yes, yes. You know, anytime you want to understand God, think of yourself and you don't, you don't treat all your kids the same. If you do, you got something wrong with you. There's kids, some of our kids get a little more favor than the other ones because some of our kids do, do right and the other ones don't. Okay. This subject of correction, we avoid it like the plague. And the Lord dealt with me the other day when he said to me, I instructed all of the disciples through correction. Now, I showed you that Sunday morning. You go back and you'll see that every time they did something, he brought correction. He's not beating them, reprimanding them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You understand? But yet, it was embarrassing for Peter to go through what he went to and very embarrassing for Judas. Yep. Judas didn't make it. Yep. We, we've got an idea that because God is love that, that he's sweet. And he never gets upset. Boy, I shouldn't say this. this. This statement, God is not angry, that's a lie. He's not torqued at the world because of their sin. But stop making dumb statements that God is never angry at anybody. That's not true. I've had him get angry at me. 
If you do anything for God, you'll find out here's an anger side to him. <laughs> I, I, I've had times when I've gotten into my pulpit and done stuff I shouldn't do. And I, I'm going to tell you something. It ain't fun at home when he comes down hard on you and tells you, go repent or else. And I got to walk in here and go, I have to tell everybody I'm sorry. <laughs> I haven't done it lately, but when I first started, I did it a little more often. Because everybody just made me so mad. <laughs> no excuse. No excuse. You're not allowed to chew everybody out because they make you mad. So I had some growing to do, but God, God was pretty strong on me. I've seen him deal with people. And I've seen him repent. I've seen him change. It's tough, isn't it, to look at a person and say, don't do that again. It really is, it's really tough because we're pastoring but then this church is also a business. And you run it like a business. And the employees, even though they're not paid, they're still volunteer. You still, there's a code of ethics. There's yeah. things you just don't do. Does that make sense? And that's hard on Lisa and I because it always comes back that it's a personality conflict between that person and the pastor. No, it's not. They're just flat out we're rebellious. Someone had to say something to him. Does this make sense? Okay. That's where this came from. And Lisa did a good job tonight, didn't she? Don't think that if you just keep disobeying God, everything's going to turn out all right for you. I'm going to tell you something. It's not. It's not. Amen. We can see that in life. We can see that in life. God is a good God. I just have one quick thing to say. And this is what I'll leave you with. In, and I didn't read Saul's account. But Samuel said, or God said, that, that um, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as idolatry. You would not think twice if you walked up to your brother's or sister's house in the Lord and you were able to look through their living room window and all of a sudden you saw them doing the hooky-coochie stuff and had the Ouija boards out and they're doing some black magic and you go, oh, that's just a little bit of witchcraft. It's okay, no big deal. He's my brother in the Lord. But yet when we say rebellion and we talk about rebellion, oh, everybody's got a little bit of rebellious streak here and there, a little stubborn streak here and there. You know, I just got this stubborn streak. Everybody has a stubborn streak. What, what God is saying is that you're doing witchcraft and you're worshiping burning incense and idolatry in your living room. You would go, oh my gosh, let's tell the pastor something's wrong there. It's a leader in the church. But, but with rebellion and stubbornness, we kind of pass it off like, oh, I just got a little stubborn streak. Everybody has a stubborn streak. And God said, no. God said, I see it as witchcraft. And that's bad. So let me help y'all with one more thing and then we'll close. <laughs> Amen. Don't ever come to me and say pastors creating division. That's absolutely stupid. I am the vision. It's my vision. I can't divide me, you goofy thing. If my vision's wrong, it's still my vision. So division can't start, it can't come out of the pastor's office. Did you, did you understand that? 
if I, if I say this is the way the church is going to go, I'm not going to get in there and then come out here and create division on what I just said I was going to do. So the pastor can't create division. I know that sounds goofy to y'all. It's amazing what people will come and say, Pastor, you're starting division. Guy, vision means two visions. No, and the word division means two visions. I'm the guy that wrote the vision. The second one came from somewhere else. It wasn't from me. Does that make sense? There's all kinds of stuff that happens in church, and people take a lot of liberty and don't realize, ah, you don't want to be doing that. God is trying to bring this church back to a place of signs and wonders and miracles. And that's what we're driving for, strong. And if that means a little correcting from the word, then we're going to receive from some correction from the word. How many of you know, I told the Lord, I said, start with me. Amen, Lisa did the same thing. Father God, thank you for the opportunity tonight and I thank you for my wife standing up and just sharing the word of God in her heart and, and the fact that she was able to get the word all day while I was out working very, very, very hard. And Father God, thank you for this evening. I pray, Father, we would leave and go home tonight with a little better understanding. And Father, if there's questions, this is a big subject. We didn't cover it all. And I give you thanks and honor and glory because you are a good God. You're a good dad. Nothing that you do is ever done for our harm, but only for our good. And we praise you for that, sir, and we love you much in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this powerful message by Pastor Daryl Morgan. We hope it blesses you. If you would like more info on Word of Life, sermons, and free downloads, please go to wordoflifeapopka.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.